This is Car Expert. Hydrogen fuel cell vehicles could have taken off if there had been more focused support from major markets. This sort of gives me the impression that this is what like a 911 GT3 would feel like if it was $70,000. Carrying extra weight of extra variants, extra transmissions, extra things to homologate, it's just not practical for car makers and I think Mazda probably deserves praise for hanging on this long. Hello, my name's Mandy Turner. Joining me this week is William Stopford. Hey, Mandy. And Scott Colley, hello. Hello, Mandy. Um, now, I've got to say, guys, and I'm sure, Will, you'd have to agree with this, Genesis are kicking goals at the moment. Uh, what they've come out and said this week is just absolute music to my ears. And, Will, I know you're a fan. Um, fill us in. Yeah, so they revealed a concept version of an upcoming coupe SUV. No, don't worry, guys, that's not the news that I'm excited about. <laughs> I'm not sure if any of us on this recording right now really care for coupe SUVs. The GV80 coupe SUV is still a pretty decent looking thing. But why I'm excited is because Genesis has said that they're seriously considering bringing the Genesis X concepts into production. So you you may recall it was a trio of concepts released over the course of a, a year or two. One was like a traditional kind of three box coupe um, with kind of a notchback look. The other one was more of a fastback uh, coupe. The other one was a convertible. Um, now they're gorgeous. The convertible in particular mm-hmm. is, is absolutely stunning. And Genesis uh, seems to be indicating that they, they want to bring these to production as kind of like halo models for the brand. Um, but the head of um, the, the chief creative officer for Hyundai and Genesis, and I'm going to mispronounce his name, Luke Donkovolka. Did I get that right? Sounded impressive to me. Oh, I think that's about right, yeah. Luke Donkovolka. Um, it's actually quite fun to say. Um, <laughs> he said that um, they're working on bringing the X concepts into production, but he doesn't want any design changes. So, yes, music to my ears because they, they all look great. Mm. But he also had some really interesting things to say as well about sedans. So if you recall, the Genesis brand launched with sedans you know, pretty much as the luxury car market was heavily embracing SUVs. So it did get off to a bit of a slow start both here and abroad, probably a stronger start in Korea where they seem to love sedans more than we do. Um, But he has said that they have no plans to uh, abandon traditional shapes like sedans. And he says that brands that do that will regret it in time. And to quote uh, Mr. Don Kovoka, he said, it's a mistake to basically write off a typology of a vehicle. I don't want to have a monoculture of SUVs on the street. I love SUVs from the rugged ones, to the sporty ones, but that's not it. He also had some really um, interesting things to say about uh, the, the design industry as a whole. Because he said, I hate the fact that young designers that I sometimes interview have only worked on SUVs because they don't know what proportions are. Um, I will continue to make sedans and coupes and everything because you have to fight for every single millimeter to get the right proportions. Doing an SUV is so easy. You end up with designers with limited skills because they've only been working on bricks on wheels and I don't want that. (laughs) (laughs) So very interesting remarks. I will say that Genesis SUVs are actually quite attractive. The the GV80 in particular is, you know, is very rakish. It's very well proportioned. But it's great to hear that even if, you know, the G80 and G70 aren't selling up the storm here, that Genesis remains committed to sedans. It's interesting what he has to say about designers losing their touch on vehicles that aren't SUVs, because I think the best looking SUVs on the market today are the ones that actually borrow the most from other segments. If you look at the Genesis range of cars, they almost have wagon-like proportions. They have really long window lines and really pronounced shoulders that aren't really SUV design cues. They're just traditional design cues that have been adapted for life on an SUV. And going even further up market, if you look at the Ferrari Puro Sangue, it is technically an SUV, but it borrows from the FF. It's got a bit of sort of long front sports coupe about the bonnet. It's an interesting amalgamation of other design cues that have been adapted to fit on a high-riding car rather than a car that's just been designed as a slab that sits a long way off the ground. So I think there's real merit to what he's saying, and I hope that we do see designers continue to to meld high-riding SUV cues with some of the more traditional touches that make handsome cars look really handsome and have for years. I totally agree with you, Scott, but I think I've said this before on the podcast – my favorite SUV designs are the ones that either don't look even remotely like SUVs and you question why they would even 
put the SUV title on it or ones that are quite literally bricks on wheels. Like it's yeah. when you get into that awkward middle ground, and I think that's why coupe SUVs bother me so much because they have the, the sheer kind of visual heft of an SUV, but they've just kind of awkwardly, you know, raked the tailgate and it all just comes off awkward. So, um, but look, Genesis's GV80 coupe SUV uh, concept is good looking as far as coupe SUVs go. I'd still get the regular GV80, but that's me. Uh, but also uh, Genesis did say that they were considering a rival for the Mercedes G-Wagon as well. So um, Albor's got a few stories out of uh, an event, uh, which I believe was actually at Genesis House in New York, which I was at earlier not early this year, late last year with Derek. Uh, it's a really nice kind of retail space that Genesis has in the meatpacking district in Manhattan. So uh, lovely trip that Albors went on, wish I was there. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I can't wait. If they end up bringing those concepts out looking like that as a production car, they're going to win a lot of people over indeed. Um, those stories you uh, can read more at the uh, news link. But in the meantime, we're going to cover more news now. And we will kick off with you, Will. The Ram 1500 REV electric ute is coming here. Awesome stuff. Yes. Um, so while Ford has yet to confirm the F-150 Lightning for Australia, GMSV has yet to confirm the Chevrolet Silverado EV, GMC Sierra EV or GMC Hummer EV for Australia, uh, Ram has said that the 1500 REV or REV, uh, however you want to say it, will be coming to Australia. Timing has yet to be confirmed. And it appears that at least initially um, it will be locally remanufactured just like other Ram vehicles that are currently sold here. Um, so for those that don't remember, oh, I mean, this was quite recently, so you should still remember. <laughs> but um, basically the Ram 1500 REV um, is an electric full-size pickup truck. It looks a lot like the regular Ram 1500, just with different front and rear end styling, which probably was a little bit of a come down from the uh, from the Ram 1500, was it Revolution concept, which was quite radical looking. Um, but it uses a pair of 250 kilowatt electric motors, one on each axle, with total output said to be 488 kilowatts and 841 newton meters of torque. So that's a zero to 60 mile per hour time of 4.4 seconds. So it's it's quick. Um, uh, it's also uh, got a very, very large battery. So I can only imagine just how heavy this thing is going to be. The standard battery pack in the US at least will be a 168 kilowatt hour unit. That's said to be good for around 560 kilometers of range. There's also an optional 229 kilowatt hour battery pack, which is said to yield 805 kilometers of range. Um, and the company's also teased an extended range variant, but hasn't confirmed any details about that. So the specs of this look quite good. Um, basically, it can support 800-volt DC fast charging up to 350 kilowatts. Um, so you can add about 177 kilometers of range in 10 minutes. Uh, and you can also use it to, um, it's got vehicle-to-load technology and vehicle-to-grid technology as well. So you can charge appliances while you're out camping or whatnot. And like the F-150 Lightning, you've got like a, a power, various power outlets in the front and rear of the Ram 1500 Rev. Uh, now, it's any guess what price this is going to have. It, it won't be cheap. Um, we know how much a regular petrol-powered Ram is. This is undoubtedly going to be considerably more expensive uh, but it will at least it, it could potentially beat rivals to market because again we haven't heard anything from Ford and GMSV about local launch timing for their full-size electric pickup trucks so I am wondering are you excited to see these on the road in Australia? Absolutely I am and I think that Ram Maybe it's, maybe it's deliberate, maybe it's not, but I think it recognises the fact it's a leader in Australia. Uh, the Ram 1500 is the car that we can really give credit for the current American pickup boom on Australian roads. And I say credit, some people would like to blame it for that because they don't think it's a good thing. But Ram was first here, uh, and since then Chevrolet has followed, uh, Ford is following, uh, and Toyota is going to follow as well. So I think it's recognised that and realised that, again, it can be first to market with the uh, 1500 REV and, and set the standard for its rivals to follow. So I'm excited to see it not just because it's going to be a very interesting sort of, I suppose, alternative to, uh, to the current range of utes in Australia and kickstart hopefully the next generation, but also because it shows that Ram realises there is an opportunity in Australia and it's willing to invest the time and effort in being first rather than waiting for someone else to take the step. 
Beautifully said there, Scully. Now, uh, the 2023 Mazda 3, we have an update for this, Scully, and a couple of things are on the chopping block. Yes. In 2023, uh, we wrote earlier this year, it is incredibly rare for a brand to offer a manual version of its normal non-performance cars. Um, Mazda was one of the few that did. I drove the G25 Astina with a beautiful six-speed manual earlier this year and really enjoyed it. Unfortunately, uh, the latest update that's coming to that car means that manual is no more. Um, Mazda has also killed the mild hybrid, and it was a very mild hybrid. It was a, a butter chicken on the, the curry scale of spiciness, <laughs> uh, the G20e, and also the X20, which had its really clever Skyactiv X spark ignition, a uh, compression ignition tech. The new range will feature only the 2-litre and 2.5-litre engines, uh, and they'll only be six-speed automatic. There's a few changes that now include cylinder deactivation for the 2-litre engine and, and some other tweaks that are designed to cut CO2 emissions. And the 2.5 litre remains the same, basically, although we do expect, and this is, I realise, a bit of a very practical detail, but the, the Mazda 3 will go from 15,000, sorry, from 10,000 kilometre to 15,000 kilometre service intervals with this update, which is a win for people who drive long distances. We're also expecting to see um, wireless Apple CarPlay, wireless phone charging and more modern USB-C ports in models that are the touring grade or above. So the entry-level cars will probably still feature some some older tech. And the very top-end cars will get a 10.25-inch touchscreen. Sorry, not a touchscreen, just a screen with a rotary controller, okay. which is a real frustration with Mazda tech because as pretty as it is, not being able to touch Apple CarPlay or Android Auto is very annoying. Mm. Finally, there's going to be a couple of color changes and trim tweaks. So we don't know what it's going to cost, but we do know that this tweaked Mazda 3 is going to have a slimmer range than it currently does. And as much of a shame as it is that the manual's gone, I don't think too many people are going to miss it. Mm, they just better not take it away from the MX-5. Whoa, right <laughs> in the street. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sad, though, because we're, we've been singing Mazda's praises um, for offering not just like and not just offering a manual like in the base model with like no equipment or anything like that, offering a manual across multiple variants mm. and different body styles. Like it was genu- genuinely commendable. And Mazda's always talking about how much they they love variety in Australia and how they'll just bring in pretty much anything that they can. Now I have no doubt. And I think I wrote an article, what a year or so ago about the percentages of um, vehicle sales that were actually of manuals. And even with Mazda, the Zoom Zoom brand, uh, the percentage of manual sales was quite low, but it's still sad to see it go because what does that really leave you with in, in the small car segment? I can't really think of anything that's left that has a manual. We've now reached a point where manuals are for a very specific set of enthusiast cars only. Um, even, you know, high-end sports cars are automatic only now. But I suppose i30N, Civic Type R, GR Corolla, and at the more affordable end when you can actually get them, i20N and RIP Fiesta ST, uh, are kind of the last bastions of that transmission. And it is a shame because they're more expensive than normal cars like a base Mazda 3. Um but just because you just because you want a manual doesn't mean you have lots of money. So there are people who are going to miss out. But unfortunately, for for those of us who love driving a car with three pedals, it's just inevitable now that the market's moving this way. And Australia is a really competitive car market at the best of times. So carrying extra weight of extra variants, extra transmissions, extra things to homologate is just not practical for car makers. And I think Mazda probably deserves praise for hanging on this long. Do you actually reckon the the manual transmission in Mazda's is, was one of the best out there in terms of affordable cars? Definitely, yeah. Um, I've driven a few sort of base manuals, not recently anymore, but in the last couple of years. And the base manual in Toyota cars, for example, feels like the same transmission that was in the 2007 Corolla my driving instructor had when I first got my learners. <laughs> uh, it was very light and very slick, but not nice. It just was kind of a tool for the job, whereas Mazda always felt like put some more effort into it. Um, mm. The one in the Mazda 3 wasn't as nice as an MX-5 transmission, but it was still super slick. It's still super precise. And I think it shows that whoever designed it really cares about what it feels like. Um, I think, though, the best manual transmission in like a normal car that I've driven, that that honour has to go to a Honda Accord Euro. Uh, a mate of mine had one as his first car and I had a spin and we were very competitive. So I was talking up my Subaru Libby and how it was so much better than his car. And then I drove <laughs> his Honda uh, and there were a lot of things the Subaru did better than the Honda, but gear shift absolutely was not one of them. It was a wow. really beautiful car to shift. 
that is a consistent, I've consistently heard that the Hondas have traditionally done the best manual transmissions, but sure. now you can't get a manual in any Honda except for a Civic Type R in Australia. So, very Which excited. we'll talk about with James Wong very shortly oh, as good well. good little teaser there. Oh, yeah. Keep them coming back for more, Mandy. <laughs> hey, uh, well, we've got pricing for the uh, MG4 electric hatch. We've got pricing for one of the MG4 electric hatches. So MG has confirmed pricing for the top spec long range MG4 Essence, um, but they haven't detailed the rest of the range and they haven't therefore detailed pricing for the rest of the range either. But even in top spec, guys, $47,990 before on-road costs. Um, and that's with a 64 kilowatt hour battery with a claimed 435 kilometers of range on the WLTP cycle. And given it's an, an essence branded MG, it comes more or less fully loaded. So you've got LED headlights, surround view camera, wireless phone charging, automatic climate control. They haven't released a, a full list of equipment, but they have confirmed that it'll have the MG pilot suite of active safety and driver assist technology. Um, so MG tends to offer a, a very comprehensive level of safety equipment, except on the MG3 and MGZS. Um, so autonomous emergency braking, adaptive cruise, blind spot monitoring, rear cross traffic alert, etc. Um, so for those who are unfamiliar with the MG4, and it also might be a bit of a confusing name because it sounds like it's just kind of one rung up from the MG3 and it's bigger than the MG3, but it's a completely different kettle of fish and it's a completely different kettle of fish from the MG5. Um, so the MG3 and MG5 are petrol, the MG4 is electric only. It is on a dedicated electric vehicle platform. Um, and in this particular guise, an essence guise, it has 150 kilowatts of power from a rear mounted electric motor. So it is rear wheel drive, um, unlike the ZS EV, which is front wheel drive. Um, it can be charged up to 135 kilowatts on a DC charger as well. So MG claims that the modular scalable platform that underpins it, um, offers a claimed 50, 50 weight distribution, um, actually genuinely excited to to get behind the wheel of this thing um and this isn't even the the hot version um because there's a in other markets there's a smaller 51 kilowatt hour battery pack with 350 kilometers of range the really interesting one is the dual motor all-wheel drive version that they've revealed in china uh, which uses the same 64 kilowatt hour battery um, but has 294 kilowatts of power. Um, so that's what, uh, three times the power of an MG3 <laughs> from memory. Wow. Um, so we'll have to see if, um, if MG details any more affordable versions of the MG4. Um, based on this pricing for the Essence, it won't be Australia's cheapest EV, um, but uh, it does join you know, an, an assemblage of, of, of some very affordable EVs that are coming out of China. So MG's own ZS EV starts at 43990 before on-road costs. It's a little bit older. It's on a combustion engine platform, um, but it has more kind of conventional SUV styling, whereas the MG4 looks more like a kind of swoopy hatchback. Um, and then you've also got models like the, the GWM Aura as well, which is a small electric hatchback, but... <laughs> certainly looks a lot different from an mg4 so i'm really curious guys what do you think about the mg4 and its pricing maybe i was expecting too much from mg but i'm a little disappointed actually um the way this thing's been positioned in the uk and parts of the rest of the world is kind of as a, a bit of a revolutionary price leader and all the reviews out of the uk have been really uh promising i understand that we may get a cheaper one at some point um, MG's obviously gone bigger battery, better spec to start with in Australia. But I was kind of hoping this had come in around the 40 grand mark or even slightly below, even with the standard range battery. And it would just open doors to all sorts of new customers for electric power. So I still think given what you get and given the range and all that sort of thing, it's reasonably priced. But I was hoping MG might also bring us a proper price leader to really open the door for electric ownership to a, a new crowd. Also, they should have given it its Chinese market name because, again, this is going to be confusing, right? They're going to bring it across the MG5. It's going to be cheaper than the MG4, and that's going to confuse people. But no one is going to get them mixed up if you call it the MG Mulan, which is what they call it in China. Really? That's wow. cute. Cute is one word for it. I think Disney lawsuit is another in Australia. <laughs> Good. And lastly, we've just got a couple of uh, Toyota stories to cover off on Scully. With uh, Toyota, we're going to bring 10 new EV models by 2026. 
Yeah, Toyota has a new CEO, uh, as we have reported on earlier this year, and he gave his first press conference having taken the reins on April 1. Um, by all reports, it actually was him who took the reins on April 1. It wasn't some elaborate April Fool's joke. Um, but Koji Sato is the new boss, and he said that Toyota is planning to launch 10 new electric cars between now and 2026. It also expects to sell 1.5 million electric vehicles every year. Now, at the current run rate, Tesla, which is the world's leading EV manufacturer, sold 1.31 million uh, cars globally last year. Um, according to Automotive News, Toyota sold less than 25,000 last year. So it's going to be a huge transformation for the world's biggest car maker. Um, I know that Toyota has a lot of experience with hybrids. Uh, according to that same automotive news report, Toyota sold 2.6 million hybrids last year. So it's sort of scaling up from there. But this is a fundamental transformation for the brand and it is significantly faster than, um, than Toyota has previously indicated. Now, a couple of these cars are market-specific. So of the 10, two will be aimed at China because Chinese market has its own specific needs relative to the rest of the world. There's also going to be a three-row SUV built in the USA. It's going to have its battery made in the USA because in America, they're now heavily incentivizing manufacturers building cars onshore. I think of the most interest to Australia and markets like us is the battery electric pickup trucks coming to Asia and other emerging markets. Mm. Now, that's more likely Southeast Asia's markets such as Thailand, that sort of thing. But Thailand is also where the Hilux is built for Australia, which would suggest that whatever does come out there would indicate that there's a chance it'll come to us as well. Um, there's also a plan to launch a smaller battery EV model, which will potentially sit below whatever the electric Hilux is called. A chunk of what is coming from Toyota is going to be built on the ETNGA architecture, which we've seen on the BZ4X SUV, the Subaru Solterra, and the Lexus RZ. Um, it's, it's not clear exactly how many of the concepts we saw from Toyota previously in 2021. There were all those really cool ones like little uh, electric FJ Cruiser style things, sports cars, utes, the whole deal. Um, but it is clear that Toyota is committed really heavily. The other thing that that brings into question is the future of hydrogen. Uh, Toyota has been one of the biggest proponents of hydrogen in the world. Uh, it was very early to the party with the Mirai. It's one of the only car brands to have a second generation hydrogen car out there in the form of the latest Mirai. And it also says that it's going to focus on commercial vehicles with that tech, which is where the rest of the market has sort of gone. Um, Previously, Toyota has sort of stood by it as an alternative to electric power for passenger cars, but it does look like, based on um, Sato-san's most recent comments, that it's going to be mass-produced, but it's going to be focused now on trucks and heavy vehicles. What that means for the Mirai, we don't know. Um, what Toyota says the benefits of hydrogen fuel are, are, of course, faster refueling, weight savings because you don't need a big battery pack, and just the fact that you can live your life theoretically in a way that's very similar to what you do now with a petrol car. But I think as battery technology advances and as the rest of the world moves to electric power, Toyota may have seen the writing on the wall for passenger cars like the Mirai and SUVs like the Hyundai Nexo and may start to pivot away from that development and instead focus purely on heavy trucks. So it's going to be interesting to see that development. Hmm. You got any thoughts on those, Will? Yeah, look, Toyota really stuck it out um, for as long as possible with hydrogen fuel cell. And look, obviously, they're, they're not moving away from it entirely, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if we didn't see a replacement for the Mirai. I, I think fundamentally the average Joe um, has now gotten so used to the idea of an electric car that infrastructure is still not great in Australia, mind you, but it's steadily improving, whereas the hydrogen fuel cell refueling infrastructure really has gone nowhere, even in places like Europe, even in the US. It's way, way, way behind electric vehicles. Now, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles could have taken off to a greater degree if there had been more focused support from major markets on rolling out infrastructure, on incentivizing these vehicles. But there wasn't the same kind of support that we have seen for electric vehicles. So it's just kind of become a bit of a dead end technology, at least in the passenger car market. Um, I think it makes a hell of a lot of sense for heavy commercial vehicles um, and, and um, you know, just large vehicles like that. 
but for a sedan, probably not. So Toyota pivoting to EVs. As, as much as I really do uh, I admire the, the zeal of manufacturers like Toyota, like BMW, that say you need to have multiple different uh, propulsion types. Um, not everyone's going to be served by one propulsion type. I, I, I admire that principle, but from a business point of view, that doesn't really make sense to I mean, I get it. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket, but what do you want to put like one egg in a bunch of different baskets? Have you ever tried carrying like four or five baskets at the one time? It's kind of <laughs> awkward. <laughs> Indeed. That wraps up this week's car news. Head to uh, carexpert.com.au for more. To talk about March's new car sales figures, which is called VFACT, we welcome the VFACT pro or expert, uh, Mike Costello. Hello. Hello, Mandy. Um, now, I see last month was actually a bit of a downer. Yeah, it was a little bit of a downer. So new vehicle deliveries in Australia last month fell by 3.9% year on year. So that's comparing it to the same month in 2022. This isn't so much down to demand as it is to supply. And I know people are sick of hearing about supply because for so long we've been saying there's no semiconductors, there's you know um, COVID in the factory lines that's stopping production. And we keep hearing that those things are now rectifying themselves and we're supposed to be flooded with cars. So why isn't that happening? Well, one of the reasons it's not happening is that now we've got problems at Australia's ports. We've got some biosecurity issues because cars were sitting mostly finished, but not quite finished in holding yards for a long period of time. They picked up a ton of bugs and seeds and all sorts of things that can't come into Australia because of our very distinctive um, uh, biodiversity here. And so those cars need to be uh, exhaustively detailed and cleaned and decontaminated before they're released, which adds a ton of time. And so there's yet another supply impediment that's hitting the market. So down almost 4%. What was really interesting was that the top 10 list of vehicles included zero passenger cars. And by passenger cars, I mean hatchbacks, sedans, coupes, convertibles, people movers, all the traditional vehicle types. So the top three were all dual cab utes and the rest were SUVs. So <laughs> the uh, the sea change in the market is obviously well and truly upon us, but this is the first time that that has happened. Usually one or two passenger hatchbacks sort of sneak in there. Um, it's also the second lowest sales figure for the month of March over the past decade, and only the really COVID-destroyed year of 2020 yielded a lower total. The good news, though, is that sales across the entire first quarter of 2023 are still higher than they were this time last year because January and February were quite strong months. So we are still looking up. And as the year progresses, um, hopefully that will continue. Um, it's also worth pointing out that EVs grew by 20% and FEVs grew by 33%. So alternative fuel vehicles, aside from hybrids, which is supply constrained because of Toyota, are doing quite well. Hmm. Now, three Utes in the top three. It's usually just the Hilux <laughs> and the Ranger. I'm scratching my head. What's the third? The Mighty D-Max. So, oh, the, right. the Hilux, Ranger and, and Isuzu D-Max were the top three selling vehicles. The top 10 went Hilux, Ranger, D-Max and Mitsubishi Outlander in fourth place and then the Tesla Model Y in fifth oh. place. So, the uh, the Tesla is doing extraordinary well. Um, then we had the Mazda CX-5, Subaru Forester, MG ZS, Toyota RAV4, and the Isuzu MUX with an all-time record haul uh, rounding out the top 10, and the Tesla Model 3 finishing 11th. So, two <laughs> EVs knocking on the door of the top 10. So, we are getting to the point now where where uh, EVs are becoming quite mainstream. Um, and also the Model 3 was the single most popular passenger car of any type. It outsold Corolla, it outsold i30, it outsold MG3, all the usual suspects. And if we pivot then to look at the brand list, uh, Toyota, of course, was on top. But what was interesting about it was it was down by almost 40%. Its market share plummeted to about 13%, which is the lowest it's been probably in, well, I would, I would say decades. I need to dig into the figures, but it's been a very long time since it's been that low. That's solely down to lack of supply. It just cannot get its hands on cars. Mazda was also down by 27% to finish second. So while the market was only slightly down, the top two brands absolutely fell off a cliff. So there were a lot of lower level brands that did quite well. Ford finished third. Almost all of the vehicles that it sold were Rangers and Everests, but luckily for Ford, they're both doing sensationally well. Kia in fourth, Mitsubishi in fifth, Hyundai in sixth, and rounding out the top 10 were Isuzu Ute in seventh, MG in eighth, Subaru, and then Tesla. So again, Tesla is doing extraordinarily well. There were a couple of smaller brands that did outperform the market. Audi was up by 49%, BMW by 57%. And other brands that grew at a rate of knots include Chevrolet, Great Wall Motor, LDV, Lexus, 
Polestar Mini Ram Trucks Sangyong and Volkswagen. So Volkswagen is finally getting its hands on some stock and that grew by 23%. Brands that belied the market trend and went down even more than the market average included Alfa Romeo, Jeep, Porsche, Renault, Skoda and Suzuki, which was down 25%. So it wasn't uh, unilaterally uh, bad news or good news. Mm. And then if we break it down into a few of the more interesting or sort of subsections, um, you can see that most of the regions across Australia were down, including the two biggest in New South Wales and Victoria, but Queensland and Western Australia and South Australia all actually grew in sales. So it wasn't a, a universal decline across the country. In terms of the category breakdown, 55% of vehicles sold were SUVs and a further 23% were light commercial vehicles, which gives you an idea of just how uh, you know dwindling passenger cars are. The top five segments were medium SUVs and 4x4 utes, which between them accounted for about 40% of the total market ahead of small SUV, large SUV, and then small car with just 6.5% share. And anyone who's been following the market for a long time would remember that only you know 10 years ago, Small cars were 25% of the market, so they have hmm. utterly collapsed. Private buyer sales were down by 7% and rental fleets were down by 13%, but business fleets were slightly up, which is probably some positive news for the business sector. As I said earlier, um, electric vehicles up 19%, but hybrids were down by 30% just because Toyota can't get supply. And something else worth pointing out is that China uh, up 31% as a source of vehicles, and China is now well and truly ensconced as Australia's third favourite source of vehicles, Japan mm. and Thailand out the front. But China, for the time being at least, has relegated Korea and Germany into fourth and fifth spots. And before it's I finish very up, quickly. it really has happened quickly. And things like mm. you've got to consider it's not just MG and LDV and these cheap Chinese brands, GWM being another example. It's also the fact that every Tesla that's sold here comes out of China. Polestar's come out of China. A lot of Volvos come out of China too. So we are seeing a lot of vehicles coming out of that, that market, particularly in the EV space. And that was what I wanted to finish up on. So... Um, we do a regular quarterly report on the state of the EV market, and I think it's quite interesting to look at the entire first quarter rather than a month when it comes to EVs because it gives us a good idea of trends. And um, the top six EVs were all made in China, which I thought was quite interesting. So the top six selling models are the Tesla Model 3, Tesla Model Y, BYD Atto 3, MGZS, Volvo XC40, and Polestar 2. So the six top selling EVs, all made in China, rounding out the top 10, Ionic 5, BMW iX, Hyundai Kona, and Volvo C40. But what was interesting about the EV race was not only are sales at 17,396 for the first quarter, up 160%, and with market share of 6.5%, which is sort of the beginning of the inflection point for mass take-up that we've seen in other markets. But we get a really good guide of the EV uh, take-up across different states and regions. So, for example, in the ACT, the EV market share over Q1 was 18.9%. So almost one in five new cars sold in the ACT was a fully electric car, whereas in the Northern Territory, the market share is 2%. Wow. In New South Wales, which has the biggest overall take-up of EVs by, by raw volume, the market share was just shy of 8%. So we are seeing some significant differences in region, and a lot of that comes down to state-specific policies around EV subsidies, tax breaks, and things of that nature. So really interesting to watch the EV market. As I said, just over 6% share for EVs now. That tends to be the beginning of the inflection point where that sales graph just spikes assuming, of course, we can get our hands on enough cars. So a yeah. bit of a mixed bag for, for the month and the quarter, but overall things are certainly looking more positive than they were uh, just a couple of years ago. Questions with that, notice, and you, you might have to pause here. Um, we, we don't really cover off on these sort of brands because not, you know, not the average Joe owns them, but how did the exotic brands go? So the exotic brands, I mean, Mandy, we're talking, we're talking pretty limited scale here. I guess we'll probably mm. start with the most popular exotic brand. If you can call it that, you'd probably say Porsche, uh, down 42%. So not a great month for Porsche. And let's be honest, most of the Porsches sold are Macans and you wouldn't exactly say that they're a, a top of the tree brand. <laughs> but if we go further down, you can see Maserati was down by 40%. Aston Martin was up by 120% to 22 units. So a great month for Aston Martin. Ferrari down 20% to 60 sales for the month, Bentley down 50% to 12 sales, McLaren was up 50%, Rolls-Royce down 20%. It's important to keep in mind though that 
often super luxury brands will get a batch of vehicles one month and then have a great performance and then they'll have none come in the next month or you know they'll be they'll because they're working at such low volumes they're much more mm. uh, i guess prey to having wild fluctuations in their sales so what we saw over the over the period of time where the market was very flat was that ultra luxury vehicles were continuing to stay quite strong because as you tend to see, when the economy is softening, the uber wealthy kind of stay uber wealthy. It's more the upper and middle class who start to sort of have to tighten their belts and make sacrifices. So I would expect to see, even if interest rates continue to climb and even if inflation continues to grow, which it probably will, that super exotic vehicles will continue to sell in big numbers because the uber wealthy, I mean, they're always going to be uber wealthy unless they stuff up monumentally. So you don't really see a huge uh, negative effect on that count. It's going to be interesting to see as these ultra luxury brands start to pivot more towards the electric car space and obviously the SUV space in the case mm. of uh, Ferrari. It's going to be one to watch, but I think you'll, you'll, you'll see plenty of ultra exotic cars floating around for the, for the foreseeable future still. Excellent. All right. It's always a pleasure catching up with you, Moko. Very knowledgeable. And uh, all the information about last month's uh, VFACT figures are now at carexpert.com.au. Thank you, Mike Costello. Always a pleasure, Mandy. Thank you. Well, the latest and greatest Honda Civic Type R is here, and James Wong was the very lucky man who got behind the wheel. Hello, JY. Hello, team. How are we all? Very good, thank you. I can't wait to talk to you about this car. You you pretty much <laughs> summed this up in three words towards the end of the review, saying, what a car. Um, yeah. But maybe before we get into that, you also spoke in detail about what you thought of its predecessor. Yeah, um, I, I know that um, some of us have worked together in a previous life and I don't recall who was with me on that hot hatch mega test we did. Um, me. Yes, so it was you. <laughs> so um, I remember that was one of the first times I got to drive the Civic Type R and given the the breadth of talent in the segment at the time, you know, you had a Mark 7.5 Golf R, you had the Focus RS, the previous one, which was, you know, a, a, a giant killer, um, the Renault Megane RS. And I remember the Civic was great on the track and everyone used to go nuts about it and when I drove it myself it just felt like you only really got that you know that feeling of pure joy when you were like absolutely wringing its neck um but when you weren't doing that it didn't sound super great um I wasn't a huge fan of the the Civic's interior the previous generation one and you know the the looks were a bit polarizing i could deal with it because it sort of looked like a um i don't know if any of you are familiar with gundam force it was like a japanese anime thing where all the little robots look like the civic Um, (laughs) it was actually a really cute show that i used to watch as a kid but when you sort of see it it just it looked like a cartoon or a caricature of what um you know a hot hat should look like so i wasn't as cool as it was and as talented as it was from a dynamics perspective, it wouldn't have been my top choice in the segment at the time. And that was sort of what I was getting at um, in my introduction was that, you know, the last one was very highly regarded um, from a performance standpoint and it was well loved by a lot of journos. But for me personally, it just didn't really do it for me. Um, and I was really excited to see this new one because after seeing um, reading and um reading Croft's review from the international drive at, um, in Portugal, it, he obviously really loved it. And I was keen to see whether I would also love it like he did. <laughs> <laughs> so, so does it do it for you? It absolutely does. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I remember when I first saw it in person and, um, cause I didn't actually drive it right away cause it was filmed, uh, the day that we, the day after we picked it up and I didn't actually drive the car back from the center that we pick it up cars up from. And so I got into it just before the weekend and I was like, Do you know what, let's just give it a crack. And I think I love how it looks from the front. It's wide, it's yeah. low, it's angry, but it's still really classy looking. And I think the way that Honda has, um, brought the type R treatment to the rear of this new one, I, I, the new Civic, I think is a really nice refinement on the old one because it still looks like the old one, but it just is a lot more classy. It's a lot more, um, you know, more smooth lines, more rounded edges, not all of these jagged and zigzag lines and things like that. And it just looks like a um, like a GT3 or GT4 race car because it's got that cool yeah. spoiler with like the exposed metal bits and you know it's got the fat guards at the front. The wheels look good. I love it in white. Not a lot of cars look good in white, but this just, it suits it mm. perfectly. Um, and I know that the the bright red interior is a little bit much for some people, but I love that stuff because it really 
um, pays respect to the the Type R heritage and Honda's heritage in the performance space. It's sort of like why I love my Golf so much because it's got the tartan trim and like the red highlights, which have basically been carried from generation to generation. I, f- I feel like they've done that here and really acknowledge the heritage. Joe, I was with you on the looks of the last car. It just was way overdone. But it is amazing how the change makes this car look so compact as well. The last one looked kind of massive and it had all these bits hanging off the side of it and the really bulky rear wing. And it almost looked like a car the size bigger. And then you stand next to this new one and because it's so clean, it almost looks kind of like dainty. It, mm. it sets you in the right mindset before you even hop behind the wheel, which I realize is a weird thing to say, but um, Honda's done an, an awesome job with the way it looks. Uh, what about the interior? Because it, it is a big improvement in the regular Civic compared to the old model. Yeah, I, I sort of had to go through it all again when I was riding it because obviously the standard Civic is a huge um, improvement over the old one, both in terms of design and in, and technology and features. So there was already that really solid base. And then not a lot of manufacturers do a great job of making the hot hatch versions that much different to the standard cars, like especially with using um, – Golf Mark 8 as an example, you know, the the interior of the GTI and the R is very, very similar to what you get in an R-Line, for example. Like I even Mm. went and checked pictures of an R-Line Golf versus the new R. The fake carbon fiber trim is the same. The seat design is the same, but just trimmed in a different fabric or leather. It's Napa leather in the Golf R and, you know, all the screens are are the same. Whereas here they've done a really good job of because just just the color and the material changes in in the new Type R alone really change the ambience quite a lot the suede on the steering wheel and the seats the bright red colorway the the, the aluminium shift knob the the type r plaque ahead of the driver uh, not the driver the passenger and the, and the special um layout of the the dials well the lack of dials when you put it into r plus mode um it just really changes how it feels inside and um i really think they've done a great job at making it feel special and even though the overall look and the overall look is pretty much the same as the normal one uh and you know i love the the red honda logo that's something that um i've seen for a really long time because that's a, a, a typical honda trademark with type r models or their performance cars and um yeah, I just think it comes together really well. I didn't spend much time in the back seat because obviously I was driving it, but um, the back seats are trimmed in black, which and it's only a two-seat bench, not a three-seat one, so you can sort of see how they're focusing on the the driver or at least the front passenger in in this car specifically. Um, and yeah, it just it all comes together and really wraps around you and, and makes you feel like you're in something that's focused and, and substantial and and built um, not built for purpose, fit for purpose, uh, which is something that I really loved. So, having driven a few hot hatches yourself and actually owning one, how does the Civic Type R feel relative to those? Does it still feel like a, a much harder edge car than some of its rivals, or is this is this with respect to how it drives? With respect to how it drives, yeah. Um, well, that's that was something that was quite immediately obvious once I set off. Like, it's got a very focused feel to it. It's it's clearly made for the track. Um, or at least that style of driving. So you feel the firmness right away. Like we, we park in a multi-level car park at the Melbourne office because we're, we're, our office is in a shopping center. And so, you know, you're going over speed humps and going up and down ramps and everything. And, and right away, you're like, this is like a performance car. And, it, and the way that the, the steering is so, so responsive and so, you know, meticulous in how it operates you know it just feels like it's just tuned to do everything with every little adjustment it's going to respond to what you're doing and with that said it it has a really great level of adjustment in the damping so um, i was actually quite surprised at how comfortable it was just to drive around the city despite how it looks and how you know that really firm focus feel from the get-go in its comfort mode it's genuinely quite comfortable and really compliant and you know my first actual drive in this car was driving from the Docklands to Paran in Melbourne's inner south or southeast and you know there's potholed roads high traffic you know tram tracks all of those kind of things and even though I had quite a lot of feedback from every 
part of the car, whether it was, you know, feeling the road through the seat or, you know, the steering or the how linear the accelerator feel is and throttle response. It all came together really well and wasn't ever unrefined or uncomfortable, um, which was really good to see. So you can really drive it as a daily and it just you feel everything so if you if that's your thing you like feeling the road underneath you you like having super responsive driver controls but you still want a level of you know comfort and refinement for your daily drive this can absolutely do that and it also looks tits so (laughs) and then once you actually take it out onto the road there's a really great um road that we take out um past hillsville called myers creek road and basically takes you up through the tulangi forest and back to Hillsville again and you know the loop is probably about 30 minutes to an hour depending on how quickly you can go through it and I took our um, our news journalist Jade with me because she wanted to have a have a feel for what the car was like and we had a, a stack of fun because it was no one on the road it was you know sun was shining and the roads there are really interesting because they're sort of uneven there's you know um imperfections scattered throughout the road surface being a a forest drive there's sometimes leaf litter and other sorts of debris that wash onto the road and i've taken quite a few cars through this route now i've taken performance suvs i've taken hot hatches sports cars Um, it's sort of like my go-to place because it's a really good test for like grip and handling again there's a mix of bends and things like that and speeds and this just was I could not fault it. Um, it was absolutely glued to the road without, again, there's so many like high frequency but low impact bumps. And we've taken some other cars through there from memory. Like we had when Scott and I did the Polo GCI versus i30 N line comparison, the Polo, for example, was so was firm to the point where it couldn't always keep contact with the road and you constantly felt it scrabbling for grip or the rear end would sort of get a bit upset with the torsion beam suspension. This thing just like you felt everything, but it just went and 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 i would slowly dial up the pace or you know how aggressive i was being on the throttle as we went all the brakes as we went in and out of corners and it just i could not it would not shake at all it, i barely felt no understeer super super grippy and um you know confidence inspiring with how it puts its power down it's so um sharp in the way that it turns in and holds on mid bend and it was just it was just incredible and, you know, a, a few times during the review, I just say, wow, because it was, <laughs> it was just that good. It was so, it makes me feel that like this sort of gives me the impression that this is what like a 911 GT3 would feel like if it was $70,000. Like this is what, it, what that f- gave me in terms of feeling. It was just so precise, so, but also just so well-rounded and, and polished in how it just did everything. And you know, there's such a high level of engineering at play here because it's it's really just that good. Jay, well, I think that comparison is really interesting. Uh, the, the 911 or the, the Porsche GT car, we actually picked up a Cayman GT4 yesterday. That's a car I've driven previously. And you're completely right. The, the way the steering feels off center, the control weights, that sort of thing, obviously they're totally different in the half million dollar mid-engine Porsche to the Honda hatchback, but there's just a clarity to them and this feeling that they're very direct and doing what you want to do straight away that kind of links the two cars. Do you think based on that sort of fact, the Honda can justify its price tag? Because that was the other big talking point when it came out. Yeah, absolutely it can. And I think it's it's very easy to see the figure compared to the old one and go like, oh my God, like it's so much more expensive. When I started running the numbers, like it's really not that expensive because- Honda obviously quotes nationwide driveway pricing, so it's going to appear quite expensive off the get-go because you're quoting the on-road figure, whereas a lot of other brands quote on-road, on-road costs. But when you look at something like a Golf R, um, an Audi S3, like they're all around the same, if not more. Um, you know, the high-spec Renault Megane RS not long ago was not far off either, mid to high 60s. A Cupra Leon VZX is mid-60s driveway. So it's still within the ballpark. And I think when a lot of people are shopping for cars like this at this price point, it's less about 
how much it actually costs. Um, and if you're within five or $10,000 of the next one, I don't think people seem to care too much. But it is it is about a little more than 10,000 dearer than the old one, which was made in the UK, whereas this one is made in Japan. Um, and it's, it's also a little bit more than something like a, a Toyota GR Corolla, which also is quite a hoot. So... Um, yeah, I think it definitely justifies its price tag. And when something's this good, uh, um, I think people are going to be <laughs> like, it's not stopping people from lining up for it. it. What have they got? Like a thousand orders for it already and a two year oh wait list? Like, God. that's crazy. And also, driving it, you get so many looks. I don't think a Honda other than an NSX has cracked people's necks the way that this thing did whenever I drove it somewhere. As soon as I was driving in the city or around where I live, like people turned, they're like, oh my God. And I went to a, um, a car meet on the Friday night and because there's a lot of people that drive these sorts of cars around there and a range of other things. And as soon as I drove in, everyone was staring at me and I just didn't want to get out of that car because I didn't want to answer people's questions because <laughs> I was like, I'm scared. But And I heard people go like, oh, my God, that's the new one because I think it was one of the first ones on the ground here. So, you know, it's so – it definitely gets a lot of attention and I think, um, you know, Honda sort of lost its mojo for a little bit where it became a bit of a, a – a white white goods brand that focused on you know the boring tastes of the american market and and now this new one is just it's such a return to form and i really just it's really hard to fault i think the only thing i could say was that it was a bit noisy on coarse chip surfaces and that was pretty much it. I don't, I don't even Which know you what expected I put in a hot hatch anyway. So. Exactly right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, the only other um, drawbacks I had for it was that it only seats four, not five. So one of your friends has to miss out and it's just a little bit more expensive than the old one. But that's sort of to be expected these days. Other than that, I couldn't really fault it. Plus all that weight just bogs you down anyway. You want to go as fast as possible, right? Exactly it's right. Just, it's just not going to work out. Fast um, drivers have skinny friends is what Mandy's saying. <laughs> True, true. Um, now, you've given it the uh, Honda Civic Type R an 8.8 car expert rating, and I see you've given it a 10 for fit for purpose, which uh, I think you bang on the money there, J-Wo. Um, you can read the review now and also Paul Marrick's video review as well. Thank you very much, James. Thanks for having me, team. There goes another car expert podcast. Is the uh, car expert team busy next week, Scully? Mandy, we're always busy. Come on. Um, I'm actually hopping off this recording and hopping on a plane to Adelaide to drive the new McLaren Artura, which is very exciting. Um, new hybrid era for that brand. And I've never driven the Bend before. So it's going to be a, a day of firsts. Um, and then next week, we've got uh, people driving secret prototypes at Lang Lang. I'll keep that under wraps for now. And Jack Quick off to Queensland to drive the new Mahindra Scorpio N. He was meant to go to India earlier this year to drive it, and that didn't quite happen. So I'm glad he's finally getting at least a little bit north of Melbourne, just not quite as far <laughs> north as he otherwise would have been, to get behind the wheel of this new rugged, kind of almost Suzuki Vitara, but old Suzuki yeah. Vitara arrival. Yeah, really cool. Um, and what about our garage, Will? How's that going to look? So in Sydney, we've got a Mitsubishi Outlander Fev and a Hyundai Staria Load in premium, guys, which is the one that kind of looks more like the people mover version. Um, and then down in Melbourne, uh, we've got a Ford Escape Vignale, top of the line, all-wheel drive, a Subaru Outback Sport and a Volkswagen Passat Alltrack. I spy a comparison test coming there. Mm. A Hyundai Santa Fe Active Diesel, a Skoda Octavia RS Wagon. I uh, hope you're giving Jade a chance to drive that, Scott, considering <laughs> she said that was the car she wanted to buy if she had 60K. Um, a Kia Seltos Sport and a BMW X3 xDrive 30i. As usual, a wonderful mix there. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us, our uh, email is podcast at carexpert.com today. We always love to uh, hear from you. William Stopford and Scott Colley, thank you. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks, Mandy.